0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. When the pandemic hit in early 2020, almost overnight, the music and arts sector in Australia was brought to a halt. And over 18 months later, things are slowly starting to come back to life. But there are many challenges facing those who work in the arts, especially for those who rely on live performances. My guest today has experienced it all firsthand. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In this episode, I feel really fortunate to be joined by Satu Vanska, a very talented violinist and a key member of the Australian Chamber Orchestra. In today's conversation, Satu shares some of the fascinating lessons from her global upbringing and speaks about why she believes music is such an important part of all our lives. Most importantly, why we should do everything we can to cherish the music and art sector and invest in its future. Satu Vanska, welcome to the Women's Agenda Leadership Lessons podcast. It is lovely to have you here today. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am on camera land and I pay my deep respects to Aboriginal Elders past, present and emerging. And I thank them for their ongoing custodianship of this land that I have a privilege to live and work on every day. Do you know which land you're on? I'm on the Gaya Muggle
1: country here on the North Shore or lower northern beaches.
0: Nice, very nice. And I imagine it's a beautiful day out there today as well. It is a typical spring muggy day. <laughs> <laughs> Satu, there's a number of questions that we ask all our guests that touch on kind of leadership for the next decade. But your story is such an interesting one. You were born in Japan and you grew up there for a number of years until you were 10 and then you moved to Finland. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Do you remember much about growing up in Japan? I have a great affinity with Japan because I spent about a decade of my life there. So I love hearing what other people's perceptions are of it. And as a young foreign child, I imagine that was a really interesting experience.
1: Yes, it definitely was. And, and I need to stress that I didn't know any other experience because I was born there and I grew up. So being a gaijin kid in Japan was my reality and we lived in a countryside, so we weren't in the you know big cities. We were close to Kyoto most of the time, but I was born on the smallest main island of Shikoku, this total country area, and then grew up close to Kyoto in a town called Otsu, which is about, you know, in Japanese ways, it's a small village of 100,000 people. So it was very rural. We were pretty much the only foreigners around. There were maybe a few others here and there, because around Kyoto and Kobe, there were foreigners. But yes, I I grew up in this funny situation at home. We spoke Finnish, but all my friends, my life was this sort of dual life. We spoke Japanese. And of course, I, I felt like I was a Japanese kid, you know, in a way. And as you naturally would do, because that's your environment. But also being aware that we were, you know, Finnish at the same time. My parents were missionaries. So that also, of course, brought a sort of a different cultural uh, difference to it, because they were Lutheran missionaries, and they were there converting Japanese people into <laughs> into Christianity. So that's, you know, something else again. So there were a lot of cultural clashes there in many ways. But then on the other hand, my parents, what many missionaries end up doing in Japan is they work as um, social workers, almost, because in the Japanese culture, there's very little support for people with mental health or problems or, or if you sort of fall through the cracks of the society, it's very often that there are these churches, Christian churches, whether they're Catholics or even Mormons or so, they're the places then where people can go to and they accept it. You know, Japan, wonderful culture as it is, but it can be quite harsh on an individual if, if something goes wrong in your life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so team-oriented that being the individual can be difficult. So, Satu, I've been to Shikoku. It's a beautiful, beautiful, I have. It's a beautiful part of town. So when I was there first as an exchange student, you would have seen all the Year 10 students who do the trips through Japan And on my year 10 trip, I did a trip to Shikoku.
1: It hasn't changed one bit.
0: Yeah, interesting. It was a really beautiful part of town and felt very different to the mainland, like in the way it looked and felt and the people, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, very different. And it's very rural. It's very much the fishermen, vegetable growers and very peaceful. And there's actually really good surf there too. So I was quite surprised. I went there in 2019 again, and and the trains, they really have those one carriage trains that go every one hour and a half. So it gives you the idea of how rural it is, you know, one carriage and every 90 minutes the train goes. So not the Japan that people usually associate.
0: No. Satu, we talk a lot about diversity these days and diversity of thinking and how important it is to when you're having a discussion about anything or running a business or doing anything really, that that diversity of thinking is so important. So you grew up in Japan, you went back to Finland, you've traveled everywhere with your music. What do you think that does to your thinking like in terms of expanding your thinking and the way you approach things? How do you think it's changed the way you do things?
1: Well, I think that there's the very obvious things on how you're brain works is of course when you speak different languages so obviously your Japanese must be pretty good then you know if you when you're speaking in Japanese for example your brain works in a different way you construct the sentences in a different way and therefore you see the world from a different way of approaching into things and it's the same thing when you speak Finnish it's like your brain switches to a different type and then goes English you know German they're sort of uh, more similar I suppose in some ways to me at least because, you know, Finnish, Japanese, very different kind of languages to to any of these. How many
0: languages do you speak?
1: I speak four languages. So I speak German also because I lived in Germany when I was an 18-year-old. I moved there for my studies. But, yes, I do take it as a great privilege to have had an upbringing where you've grown up in a different culture, not of your own, but been able to be in a culture and get to know it intimately and then moving into your own culture, so to say, which then to me felt like I was a foreigner, of course. So you sort of always end up being a foreigner wherever you go. And and I have to say that the thing of being a foreigner in your own country is not the most pleasant feeling. But I got used to it too in Finland and I thought, I think I sort of um, integrated. But then I wanted to leave also because I, I always did like the idea of being in a bit more sort of a international atmosphere and yeah to your question what does you know diversity how does it make me yeah it is true that I have always been wanted to seek out a more of a place where there's people from all all over the place and that's why I do like being in Australia for that reason that it is a place where everyone's an immigrant one way or another.
0: Mm. Yeah I think we do a better job of it here potentially we make it harder for I think for First Nations people whose country it is But, you know, for all the rest of us, we are all visitors. We've all come here. I absolutely agree with you. I think there is a resilience and a skill set that you learn when you are the outsider. And, you know, living in Japan, I went to Japan for the first time in 1986 and I was living in a country town, went to Tokyo a number of times, but was living in a country town and I was very much the foreigner. And travelling, you feel that as well. So it builds a resilience, I think.
1: Yeah, and also you stop idealizing any particular culture because if you know a few cultures very sort of intimately, you know that places are different, you know, and people have different ways of looking at things and some cultures, you know, value other things over that some other cultures see them very, diff- you know, differently. So I see it as a great gift that, in fact, that I don't have a home in that sense as a country that I sort of, you know, really want to, go back to or where I feel like I identify as a Finnish person and I really miss Finland. And I find it very limiting because you end up seeing that country maybe not from the most realistic or you see it sort of because it's mine, it has to be a great place. And that's, of course, how nationalism in general works. Uh, And it's great to have this feeling of belonging, but I don't see that there is a problem in feeling home in lots of different places.
0: No, I agree and I think that especially after COVID, you know, we've all had to spend so many protracted hours where we were for the last two years, having that expansive thinking but not really identifying home as a place, uh, more a peace of mind is uh, really, it's interesting but also important. I think what you said all earlier about language is also something I can identify with. I grew up in a home where my parents spoke Punjabi and it goes to why diversity of thinking and experience and culture is so important in Punjabi you don't really say please and or thank you so my parents when they speak English don't translate and don't generally use please and thank you but it's not a rudeness thing it's just uh, a cultural thing and I think it's exactly what you said you put emphasis on different things and so having people with those different perspectives around the table you inevitably end up seeing different things as important that might not be highlighted. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah.
1: In Finnish there is no word for please.
0: Yeah, so same thing. Yes. Yeah. Satu, you're at the ACO, the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Tell me a little bit about how the last two years have been, because obviously COVID's been very, very hard for the arts industry. Just dreadfully hard. Talk to us a little bit about about not only your own personal experience, but your experience as being part of that sector.
1: Yes, yeah, so in march 2020 our last concert was in launceston i think it was the 13th of march and then a few days later we started to get these messages from europe saying some of our friends who were playing in orchestras they said all concerts have been cancelled till may and we were going like that's impossible. You can't cancel concerts, you know, because we are, we used to this, like cancelling is not an option. Like it never was an option. Show must go on. You know, that's the ethos. Even if you're missing, you know, the only reason we wouldn't go on stage if you're missing your arm, you know, so we, we, you know, getting on stage in any, any situation. So to have this totally, this plug being pulled off was, such an unthinkable thought and of course and I think the whole world was of course we were all in a shock when it happened and then the May turned into June and then it turned but so very beginning when it all happened and everything got cancelled and we were all trying to get to know this situation in this new sort of world and we're having a lockdown what is it even it's like we were baking banana and all that like what was that about (laughs) so so it seems the first reaction was you know but immediately with the ACO we decided that we are going to get to know our audience we're going to get to know our audiences better and we're going to want the audiences to get to know us better and more intimately through this and we are going to put out content out there which then went into something called the home casts which were digital performances, uh, whether it was you know there were some of them were quirky and some of them were you know touching and so we'd put you know things that we'd filmed at home. and we immediately put ourselves a very high target that we because we were in Australia, little bit behind from Europe. So in Europe they were doing a lot of videos where, you know, the musicians would be in their pyjamas in a kitchen playing they the were bed of fabulous. a
0: 19th. Yeah, they, they were, were fabulous,
1: fabulous. But I was we were there were so many of them and I'm like, no, we're not gonna be in our pyjamas. No pyjamas allowed <laughs> in our videos. So we, we sort of tried to put it into another, you know, like get a proper microphone, try to film it properly. It was very, very stressful because we're not technical people, we're musicians, so suddenly we are in a lockdown. And Richard, my husband and I were like operating cameras, mic- microphones, are they all on? And then, you know, and, and it's, it, it was a real learning curve. So we did that for a while. Then we so the Australian Chamber Orchestra then decided that we're going to do a proper digital performance. That's with the with the director and, uh, and with a more high end um, that will also be, you know, can be streamed. But it is also with a paywall and that was called StudioCast, and they were launched last year too. And so in a way, as devastating as this all is, because financially, of course, there's nothing for us in it, you know. I mean, musicians all, from Ed Sheeran to uh, opera singers to musicians to symphony orchestras, we all make our money from, from selling tickets because, you know, streaming and all that stuff doesn't really nobody sells albums so it really was the sort of like well there's no money in it but we can at least you know try to keep ourselves out there and give people music in this time and and actually the the response was really overwhelming and our audiences really loved it and 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 looked forward to it and then we Got into that like lucky situation in Sydney where we were we had about six months where we were performing again. But the uncertainty is, you know, it, it, it really killed us. I mean, the amount of performances that we've cancelled has been sad and it's devastating. But the support that our audiences have given in, you know, donating tickets back to the organisation and and donating, keeping us sort of afloat by giving their support and some people, you know, supporting even more. And it came from very surprising places, you know, where suddenly people who had never donated before were suddenly donating to us. And it gave us purpose, you know, and made us feel like we matter because I have to say during the second lockdown, it was a bit harder. You know, it was the first lockdown when it was, it's like, yeah, we can push through this, we'll do this. But then of course the apathy comes in in the second one. But then on the other hand, throughout these lockdowns too, They've been really good times also creatively to do projects that you would never have had time to do when you're racing around the world. And now we have the challenge of bringing those projects into conclusion whilst at the same time starting the racing around the world again. So it's going to be very busy again. But for the arts, it really is a really difficult thing. And I know that in many countries... And also in, in Australia, you know, it of course has been very disheartening that, you know, there's, you know, sports things, uh, the world's being turned over for, for football matches to go ahead, but guitar strumming, singer can't be in some live little live venue safely, you know, performing, it's been banned. So it's been really hard. And um, I am very fortunate that I'm in such a well-established institution as the ACO, but I really feel for all the Freelancers and and also the people who are behind the scenes, all the people who are in the stagecraft, people, the lighting people, the sound people, the people who come with the touring. I mean, it's a whole industry that is you know suffered so so much.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know we all tend to think of the economic impact of COVID on the arts in, industry, but I think one of the other areas that we tend to forget is I my daughter was in the. Um, flagship orchestra of the Australian Youth Orchestra for years and I saw her, um, she played the violin and I saw her and my kids as well in different bands they were in, get so much energy and socialisation and mental health from coming together and playing music as a collective and so when you're in a COVID lockdown and you're isolated and you're trying to play music together but you're doing it like this over video conference or how do you create that energy that comes from playing music with somebody next to you? How do you create that energy over video conference?
1: Well, you sort of don't, you know, you can't really play with someone together over video conference. It's The technology isn't there because there's delay. It just doesn't work like that. But I tell you how we did some things it was extremely stressful so we would do these zoom things so that you know uh, Richard would be in his studio building a click track and then we'd all have to play our part to the click track and then there's like 17 different parts that you then put together into thing and that's how you create it that was that that was the necessity that we had to do if we tried to put something so it was a lot of editing a lot of matching you know sounds you know all this sort of boring stuff that people don't have to know about but it was then a different kind of product you know it's not playing together but it's actually more like a recorded product you know in a strange sort of um, futuristic way that I actually hope that we never have to go back to because we do prefer <laughs> playing playing together and um, the ATO was we were very lucky that we actually the time that we didn't play together at all last year was very short it was maybe only a six-week period that the orchestra didn't play together as a whole and um and even if they weren't for performances we always kept on doing recordings and things like that but the longest was this previous lockdown that was the longest that we we didn't play together but then when we get together and we're recording again look it's like um You know, it fits like a glove. It it, it feels like, oh, this is what it is, you know, this is what it is.
0: We had Professor Raina McIntyre, who's a leading epidemiologist, come on the show in the last season. And she was saying that going forward as an epidemiologist, she thinks that this is our future, that we will go from pandemic to pandemic to lockdown to lockdown. Are we building enough resilience? Are we doing everything we can to build resilience in the music industry and in the performance sector in particular? To go forward. How do we do that? Like that just seems like such a hard task.
1: Yeah, and especially that people have their Netflix and all this stuff to binge on, you know, who's got time to then think about music? Um, I'm hoping that there's enough music lovers out there that care about music and that there'll be new mu- like music that's been created or composed or recorded in in the zeitgeist. I think it's that's not going to go away we're going to be a sad society if we just ignore it all and we're going to be like zombies <laughs> just sort of couch watching tv it doesn't feel right entirely but look we just have to be flexible and I have a feeling that yes it's going to be a some sort of a hybrid version that they're probably not going to be quite as much international touring as they used to be before and they'll be dependent on more digitalization, But the digitalization then means that the audiences also have to get used to maybe not getting everything for free, you know, because uh, that's a really difficult one. Things cost money to make and if there is nobody, everyone expects everything for free these days, which is, I suppose it's going more and more into we'll have to find some other ways than making revenue because that's what it is if you want musicians to survive you you (laughs) need to pay them something
0: which brings us back to a different topic really because I think in this country in Australia in particular we seem to value sports so much we would never think of going to a big sports match and getting it for free we would never think of going on watching international sports stars for free and yet there seems to be a different view with music
1: Yeah, but we watch them on television for free because the advertisers play. So I'm talking about nobody expects to go to a concert for free, but everybody expects to be able to see something on their phone like this on a one tap and, and not worry, you know, not think about paying. And I do hope that through all this, though, the live experience will become dearer to people's hearts. And we can see it already in a way how theatres and concerts, you know, people do want to attend and because it, it is that moment that we share collectively together with other people. I would hope that there'll be some sort of government policy or understanding towards art sector that it is actually something that is needed in a society to keep a society safe in the name of well-being of a society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with education, doesn't it? It starts with how we educate our young people. Do you think we do enough to teach our children the importance of music and art as they're growing up? We do at a really young age. We take them to all sorts of classes and show them how to beat drums and, you know, clap castanets. And, but we seem to lose it as they get older.
1: I think that yes, every every child should be given the opportunity to learn an instrument, and and it's something that should be seen as an as an important thing because I mean the studies are all there. It's good for a child, child's brain to to learn an instrument. And ACO has a project in this in St Mary's North Public School in Western Sydney, where all children from year one through to year three, I think now or year four even they all play the violin or cello and they all come to school before school and they practice every morning 15 15 minutes together once a week they have a music lesson then from one of the tutors that is um, provided by ACO and it is the principal of that school and i've been there witnessing this you know with, with being very moved by it and the principal of the school is just saying that the attendance school attendance just has been not not she can't believe it and children and these are children who are many from a very disadvantaged families and and from difficult circumstances who struggle a lot in life and who are expected to struggle in life and and these kids they just love it they just love playing the music and they've been also like taught it's it's with great discipline you know like a, the the tutor it's it's just amazing and and they they just love being able to having this tactile experience of you know playing the violin and then when they got the bow licenses when they were allowed you know they were so excited and you could see the you know the happiness in their eyes and they've got something to aspire to and what i think is so important about music for children especially in this you know in this life of this that we live in this i want now i i you know this total instant gratification is what's so beautiful about Playing music together with other children, whether it's Baba Black Sheep or Beethoven Symphony, it doesn't really matter, but playing together, it gives you this feeling that there's something bigger than yourself in this world. You're part of something that you, you get this access to something that you couldn't achieve by yourself, but because you're doing it with others, you're sort of tapping into something bigger. Than yourself and something that's worth aspiring I'm sure it's something that your kids felt when they were in a Sydney youth
0: oh absolutely and you know between it we've got my daughter played violin and piano and my son then did uh, bagpipes guitar and voice and my youngest one does trumpet so between them they've got a mix but
1: wow I can imagine the noise in the house yeah're the they're, lucky and the now. Trumpet they're all, going at the same time they're all
0: older <laughs> so it's real music but it's given them a sense of belonging so you know as they as they entered high school, even though they didn't know anybody, they had music and so they were able to join ensembles and bands and choirs and before they even entered, they had something to belong to and, you know, some of them, my daughter's gone on to AYO, my son's gone on to NIDA. I've, like they've gone in different directions with it, but it has given them a constant.
1: Yeah, and it's given them interests. So they, it's given them the sparkle. That's so what I would wish music to give Children, if you if you have music in your life as a child, and you've been exposed to music and you've learned an instrument, whatever you do with it, you'd hope that it's given you this opportunity to fire up your brain so that you'll find interests in other and and be able to connect it to something else. You know, whether it's you know musical theatre, whether it's you know playing the piano, whether it's liking Beethoven, whether it's liking Nirvana, whatever it is. But so it gives you this this access and widens your horizons. Really, that's what life's about isn't it
0: yeah absolutely and I think too you know teenagers can be teenage angst is a real thing it's hard to get through those years and we've seen our kids be able to express themselves in a different way so when words weren't possible you know they would sit at the piano or sing or do something to express themselves and that's been really important Satu I want to ask you about your Stradivarius Tell us a little bit about the, the instrument. Is, is it still the only Stradivarius in Australia? Uh,
1: no, there's two, and the, both of them are in the ACO. So, um, yes, so I'm still playing on a Stradivarius violin that was uh, built in 1726, owned by our chairman Guido Belgiore and his wife, Michelle. I'm very, very speechless about the honour of being able to play such an instrument. It is from his so Stradivarius was made about two thousand instruments in his lifetime, out of which about six hundred have survived. And this is from his so-called later period. Um, he was over eighty when he made this violin in his workshop. Look to have something so old and so excellent. As your tool of everyday tool you feel very privileged and you feel very special and and also talking about the vocabulary that we were talking about languages before before and to have an instrument like that is like you know instead of having a bit like my Japanese vocabulary is very 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 limited but when you have an instrument like this you have all the words of the world that you can express you know and so it's got lots of colors it's very colourful. It's a it's it's like this Ferrari of a violin, I suppose, you could say, that you can do a lot with it.
0: Nice. So looking ahead then, Satu, at the next 10 years, what do you think are they really interested in your views on what you think are the ways that we need to lead for the next decade? Like you've just talked about the resilience that musicians in the ACO had to display to get us through COVID. You put on music for everybody to hear, You shared your gift with us during the lockdown. What do you think you need to think about for the next decade? I think
1: there is something about, particularly in the music field or in our field, especially classical music, um, I'm very conscious of the danger of stagnation that comes through, you know, like these big orchestras like the Vienna Philharmonic who had their first female player in 2003. You know, it's just like, that's, that's crazy. You no, know, that, that's one extreme, but there is still a big following for this. And they sort of like, they, they treat it almost like they're happy to be in their aspect in their museum, you know, they're happy to be in that. So that's the one extreme and that's the sort of world that I'm quite happy to sort of look from outside and go, hmm, go. But that world is also changing quite quickly with, you know, all these female conductors and the world is changing. But I think artistically diversifying your talents and seeing how you fit into the 21st century as a, a so-called classical violinist is—we is all have to ask ourselves: like, what's what's my place in this? How am I? I hate the word relevant, but but it is important to ask ourselves that and how. How am I making it so that it's accessible for, for new or, you know, for newer audiences whilst keeping older? And, and, and therefore comes the word diversity, OK? I think we have to diversify our talents and our skills in a way that because as a classical musician, we have a great gift in having, you know, hundreds of years of notated music, Music that is so different, you know, goes from early Baroque all the way to contemporary and the avant-garde and everything. And there's so much in between. It's a great gift that we can share with the world. And so we have a perspective. So talking about, again, like it's a very diverse perspective that comes through this music. And therefore, it's also, I think it's important that we also create our own music that goes, whatever it is, you know, people have different different styles, but collaborating with different kinds of musicians who are not necessarily from our world and also writing your own music that is somehow, you know, whatever it is, whether it's writing for films, whether it's uh, writing songs, whether it's, you know, this or that. I think it's very, very important for us to bring our perspective into the different type of worlds uh, that we're living in and try to get out of this aspect of uh classical music world, which can be very daunting and a bit scary for, you know, the average punter. And I can't blame them for that, you know. If the idea is that the first female musician of an orchestra was appointed in 2003, I mean, why should anyone be interested in, a, in, in an institution like that? So therefore, for myself, you know, I started this thing called ACO Underground about... Ten years ago, where I sort of threw myself into, a, you know, to the hot seat, saying, "Okay, I'm gonna sing something," and and we're gonna do these concerts that are, you a in a more like a live music venue rather than in a big concert halls, and have this, you know, more inclusive uh, approach, and having a mishmash of music where we mix, you know, some classical pieces with original songs or with um, some cover songs and and create this sort of a mood and, a, and an atmosphere for people and have other musicians from the different walks of life to play with us on stage. And because it's something that we'd never done before. And as you say, I mean, what do we see? Where are we in 10 years' time? And if I had 10 years ago known what's going to happen in a 10 years, it's, it's impossible to tell you know what's going to be happening in 10 years time but you can do things and you can do new things and see what works and what doesn't and and be open open open-minded and that's what I think is the most important thing for us to keep open-minded and to be aware of the times and seek out other people who you want to work with who share similar values as you do because these days as musicians you know it's the rock musicians who are suffering just as much as the classical musicians you know there's very little opportunity for bands to be playing live there's jazz musicians were you know it's their lives have always been tough so I see that more we sort of get together and try to not just help each other but create things together is going to be helpful and we can I'm sure get the message through to the wider audience is much better than us all staying in our own little worlds and there's a place for that too but that's what I'd like to advocate especially as a classical musician.
0: It was devastating to watch the decimation of the music and arts sector during the COVID lockdown. Like travel and hospitality it was awful to watch the entire sector come to a standstill. Yet like so many of our learnings through the pandemic it was heartwarming to see the way that artists and the sector more generally created opportunity out of the lockdown. Artists who put on weekly ad hoc concerts and organisations like the ACO who stepped up to give us joy during lockdown and take us all on a journey of how we could interact with the sector differently. Satu was instrumental in taking us through that journey with ACO and it was a pleasure today to hear the other side of that the creativity, the learning, and the joy that she was able to create during that time. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons produced by Women's Agenda. This episode was creatively produced by Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. We'll see you next week for the last guest of this season. Women's Agenda is
1: proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.